promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 9 still. And uh, all of which are not good. They're portraying fools, and they're portraying... um, people that separate from wisdom and uh, the wicked. There's a lot of uh, uh, undesirable characters in these verses. The one that is led to the most questions, though, comes in verse 4 because you can take it a couple of different ways and um, there's a positive way to read it and a positive way to understand it, but that makes it awkward because of where it's sitting, where it's positioned in the paragraph, the fact that it's nested within a larger section where all the all the other verses here are pretty negative, um, that leads me to believe in context that it's best to, uh, to take verse 4 uh, for the negative understanding that it can be read. And so we'll talk about that this morning as well, uh, whatever the deep waters are there for the words of a man's mouth. And so we'll discuss that as well. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the the blessing that it is to assemble together. I thank you for Wednesday morning, Father. I thank you for this nice time in the middle of the week where we can come together and Turn to the book of Proverbs and grow in your wisdom. I thank you for the the blessings that you continue to provide uh, above and beyond anything that we could ask or think. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so um, just to recap where we are, because point one has all the (laughs) subpoints. So we're still in point one as we cover verses one through nine. Chapter 18 begins with nine verses of social dysfunction. Social dysfunction, the community impact when multiple people are not walking in wisdom, the multiple impact when you have a concentration of fools and the damage they do in your culture, in your city, in your state, in your country. And uh, starting with the idea of separation, separating from the community of faith, quarreling against sound wisdom, you know, how quickly do you come from just, I mean, it's one thing to be passively negative. Uh, what uh, my, uh, John Eichmann would call passive negative volition, whereby you're kind of cold to doctrine and you're not really hungry for it anymore and you're drifting and kind of skipping church more than ever. That's a passive negative volition. But then a very short step beyond that is active negative volition. And now instead of your take it or leave it attitude, now you're becoming hostile to others when they want to get it. And, and you're criticizing others when they're under Bible teaching and, and uh, you're quarreling in uh, in that regard. And so uh, I think some of that comes out here in this first verse. Uh, he who separates himself. As, so remember, separation is death. And when you're separating from the community of faith and separating from the community of wisdom, you're really functioning in an operational death. And uh, and that's what reversionism is. That's what walking in darkness is, uh, is all about. So the term parad is worth... Uh, studying and worth seeing, and particularly some of the other extensions, other forms of it, recognizing this is the basis for the Pharisees. This is the foundation, this is where Pharisee gets its name, 
that they were separate ones and they were separate, separating themselves from uh, other Jews that they felt were not as holy as they were, not as, uh, as, as righteous as they were. And uh, the issues there. Because understand, avoidance soon becomes a bared teeth hostility. And uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the imagery of, of the second part there, the quarreling, when you're growling, when you're baring the teeth. And uh, it's not a happy look. We also talk about folks with closed minds. They often have open mouths. <laughs> and uh, not uh, uncommon in the human experience and uh, I think developed well in uh, Proverbs and elsewhere. Um, but we see it here in verse 2, verse 6, and verse 7. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. So yeah, you know, he's not going to take the time to study, uh, to, to dig it out, to uh, exegete a passage, or, or really understand what the truth really is. doesn't have time for that. He's too busy telling you what he thinks and sharing his own, uh, his own what he thinks is wisdom in that regard only revealing his own mind. And it's, uh, it's uh, almost like that revealing is almost like a public exposure of shame, of nakedness. In, uh, in that's what he wants to, uh, to show off. Likewise, verse 6 and 7, a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. Um, and, and not only, you can read that a couple of different ways too. His mouth calls for blows, meaning uh, the things he says just makes you want to smack him. In the, in the sense that, you know, he's just talking foolishness. He's talking uh, just, just the opposite of wisdom from the Word of God. And you, you start to think at some point just a nice whack upside the head could knock some sense into him and, and maybe then, uh, you know, he'll close his mouth and, and, and get humble for doctrine. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. And uh, so much that can be developed out of that as well related to this. But really, I think all three of these verses together, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 7, really point out the damage that's done, the soul damage that's done with prolonged darkness. That if you're not feeding your soul with the Word of God, if you're not transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you're going to be conformed to, uh, to this age, to this world. And that's really uh, what we see here in Proverbs is, is what Paul gets at in Romans 12, the consequences of not transforming your mind, not renewing your mind, is uh, it's a terrible road after that. The shame of their naked heart is exposed to everyone. And we won't turn there, but the, the story of Noah, we'll be in dealing with Noah Sunday morning from the Hebrews commentary. Uh, Hebrews 11 celebrates Noah's faith. And, uh, and so we'll look at that. But after the flood incident, Noah, the great man of faith that saved his family, um, got involved in some horrible drunkenness and, and other ugliness there. Uh, and so that's, that's a part of the testimony too. That if you have a tremendous victory in faith, look out. Because uh, the drunkenness afterwards can uh, get you in all kinds of trouble. And, and uh, you deal with that. But anyway, so the language of Genesis 9 when Noah exposes himself and uh, the blessing of Shem and Japheth that came to cover their father's nakedness, that, that honored their father, that uh, was really a counter-testimony to what Ham had done. Um, that's the language that's used here with the, with the fool. With this fool in his closed mind and his open mouth, he's revealing his own mind like he's some kind of a, uh, a flasher, some kind of an exhibitionist that uh, has a, some perverted sense of, of wanting others to see his shame. 
And uh, curious to me that the Hebrew language could be so vivid in, uh, in that way. All right. Then we get into really the downhill slide of verse 3. And uh, that's what we want to kind of deal with here today, the contempt to the dishonor to the scorn. It just gets worse and worse and worse the longer it's prolonged and the, the greater damage that gets done to your community. But, but uh, this is point C in the outline. Public wickedness generates a degenerative sequence of public harm. Public wickedness. These are the things that are generated. These are the things that come to exist. And uh, this is, uh, uh, I think it's useful for us to, to recognize the capacity that we have, the capacity we have verbally to bring about such destructive harm, uh, the capacity we have in our behavior, in our action, in how we live out our lives, and that the way we live out our lives will actually generate a consequence in the community. And it's called either blessing by association or cursing by association, as the case may be. And if there's um, a core, what Pastor Theme called a pivot, if there is a concentrated um, uh, amount of believers on positive volition that are living out their lives according to the Word of God, there's a massive benefit to the community. And uh, the, the, the neighborhood is better, the city is better, the state is better when believers are reflecting divine viewpoint. And vice versa. <laughs> when unbelievers are reflecting worldly viewpoints, then they're just joining the unbelievers at that point who are always reflecting worldly viewpoints and, and things get darker after that. And so this is what we see here. But it is, it is really, uh, I don't want to use the word creation, that's why I try to use the word generation uh, rather than create. Because we're not, we don't create out of nothing. We don't, we don't say let there be and then something comes to exist. Like God is the only creator. But we can be creative, and in our creativity, we generate an awful lot of things that either benefit our culture or harm our culture. So verse 3 says, when a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. They go hand in hand. So when a wicked man comes, what does that mean? Well, when he's around, when he's on the scene, when he's influencing his neighborhood when he's when he's uh not only present it's not just his arrival hey look at me but it's the it's the impact that happens when his wickedness starts to have its detrimental results and so it's generated as a consequence of his being there right and i think we intuitively get this we understand this that even in secular wisdom we can identify with the fact that um, there are additions to the neighborhood that are harmful. And, and then there are additions to the neighborhood that are beneficial. And, and if you have too many of those harmful additions to the neighborhood, then, you know, around the picnics and around the barbecues and just chit-chatting with, with folks, you, you know, you start to have a, a, uh, a, a common agreement that, well, there, there goes the neighborhood, Right. And you realize that it's, it's gone downhill and, and it, it didn't happen overnight, but it's steadily been heading that direction. And why is that? Generally speaking, okay, and, and it's not, um, I mean, it could be a racial thing, but it's not racist to realize that some contributions are positive and some contributions are negative. 
And so depending on who's being added to the mix, um, and it's really their wisdom or lack thereof. If they're following biblical norms and standards, bring them on. We'll take, we'll take a thousand of them. But if they're reflecting unbiblical norms and standards, if they're, if they're uh, reflecting the world's wisdom in very harmful ways, we don't want them. Say, you know, can we find some kind of a deed restriction that says you've got to be positive to doctrine? You know, or something <laughs> whereby um, uh, we, we can have a positive impact in our community. So what's the answer? How about uh, leading them to the Lord and getting them on doctrine? How about that? How about evangelism and Bible teaching in the neighborhood that uh, can mitigate some of the harmful effects? So a fool, uh, when a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. They come hand in hand. It's just, it's not created ex nihilo. It's not, it doesn't uh, happen out of thin air, out of nothing. It's actually generated as a consequence. It's a consequential generation of the uh, influence that wicked people have in their community. All right? And then it continues because it doesn't stop there. There's another tandem that's mentioned in, in 3B. With dishonor, scorn. With dishonor, scorn. And so what I think we have here is instead of two pairs, I think what we have is the first one that brings the second, that brings the third, that brings the fourth. That we have a chain reaction to the poetry in the, in the uh, uh, parallelism here of 3A and 3B. Because dishonor is, uh, is uh, an extension of contempt and then scorn is the ultimate extension from there. So we have a cascade effect, if you will, where it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So uh, hence the point that we have here. Public wickedness generates a degenerative sequence of public harm. And it's only going to get worse. The longer that darkness continues, the worse it gets. So uh, we start with contempt. We start with contempt. And this is the, uh, the noun booze, B-U-W-Z. It has nothing to do with liquor. It just sounds like the English word booze. All right. Um, but it's... Uh, a, a verb for the uh, really the the shame that and, and and part of this is that all three of these terms are used somewhat synonymously, somewhat interchangeably, and so any of these could all be translated shame. They could all be translated, you know, scorn or contempt, dishonor. Uh, we have English words uh, in this English verse, but these Hebrew expressions are, are largely interchangeable, which is why they're put in parallelism, the way they are here. But the idea is, is as a public shame. It's not a personal embarrassment. It's not, you know, you did something boneheaded and so, you know, you're embarrassed. Uh, there, there's a personal embarrassment and then there's a public shaming, see, uh, which isn't done as much anymore as it used to be in previous generations. And in fact, it's looked upon as being inappropriate in some ways. That um, it makes me wonder what's what motivates the desire to end public shaming. You know, uh, when public shaming can be quite useful in uh, in a lot of contexts. Uh, but the idea, I think, um, the idea is is to try to tolerate sin and try to excuse sin and uh, to remove the community impact that it can have. 
So, uh, so much so that uh, it, all it really ends up doing is promoting more of the sin when you remove the public consequences or the, the public stigma, if you will. So uh, that's, that's the other issue there. And as we were running out of time last week, we looked at uh, Job and we looked at Genesis. We looked at the example there. Remember when Judah um, had lost his checkbook, he lost his seal, and um, there's a, a public shame that can happen there. So let's just pick up Genesis 38.23. Only because the irony of this chapter is is so uh, powerful. Job thirty eight twenty three, not Job, Genesis thirty eight, and verse twenty three has the vocabulary of booze, where it's translated as laughing stock. Judah said, "Let her keep them; otherwise, we will become a laughing stock." After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. And so there is a we involved in the shame, in the laughing stock. Not only is Judah uh, facing this exposure, but um, his partner in crime here is uh, also subject to the exposure, um, his friend the Adulamite. And uh, whatever his name is, he is the Adulamite, which means he's a clan uh, leader. He's a clan chieftain, if you will. And, and so for him to be involved, for him and Judah to be involved, uh, the fact that they're, they're both married men, they're both family men, they are men of, of means, and um, that they also happen to have this harlotry um, pastime or, or whatever. Um, whatever the, the indications are, this is not a unique experience, right? That he didn't just see Tamar there and and think, hey, you know, I'm going to frequent this harlot for the first time in my life. Uh, this is probably something that he's uh, has a pattern, and the Adulamite is his henchman in this. Anyway, and that's what can't be exposed. Because what's worse than sin, in the carnal mind, <laughs> what's worse than sin is the public knowing about your sin is the disappointment to your wife and to your family, to your business partners, to um, whatever else, uh, whatever business impact that it has. And so uh, because when you get exposed, then um, your, your fellow sinners uh, start to wonder how trustworthy you are, and, and now they have to weigh continued association with you as far as how it exposes them to risk, Okay. So, you know, the Adulamite's going to face consequences here. Judah's going to face consequences here. Judah's brothers are going to face consequences here. In fact, he can spread to all the, the entire clan of, of, uh, of, of the, the brothers, the, the descendants of Jacob. And so there can be a terror associated with that. And Job said he was never enslaved by that. He never was surrendered to the terror of booze. That's Job 31 and 34. But here's, uh, here's Judah who would rather lose his seal than uh, the, the shame that's going to come if, if it blows up. And so he's going to try to let this uh, float by, try to let this just blow over and uh, find another seal and try to, he would rather redo all of his business dealings than, um, than be exposed for this. Now, 
if we understand the context of this, what's happening here, because uh, this Tamar is his own daughter-in-law, and this is because uh, of the boy that died and he didn't have a child, and and so and then the next boy died, and then the third boy tried to not die. <laughs> um, anyway, it's an interesting chapter. Now, when it when she turns up pregnant, this is the key. Now, look at his attitude until he gets caught, right? So um, after the laughingstock verse of verse 23, in verse 24, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. So he's had three months to try to cover up his sin and probably replace his seal and probably he has to redo documents and he has to redo things um, with a new seal that he invented for himself or created for himself. Um, and so he had all that time to cover his tracks and try to hide his shame. Uh, the the pregnant, pregnancy can't be hidden, right? I mean, well, to a point, but three months was it and there, she's exposed. All right. And so she's with child by harlotry. Well, there's consequences for that. So Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. The, the harlot was to be burned, and particularly a, a witchcraft, a, in sorcery, any of these things that require burning. So while she was being brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, now this is interesting on her part, uh, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. Uh, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And it's interesting, she sent to her father-in-law. And it's, uh, you know, so it wasn't like it was a big uh, public thing. She sent to him. And uh, so it still can keep it quiet as far as that that goes. But anyway, it's her get-out-of-jail-free card. It's her, it's her way to let Judah know, uh, you're the father here. And, uh, you know... Like when they brought that adulteress to, to Jesus, where was the man in that chapter? In John chapter 8, they're ready to stone her. Uh, they were caught in the act, but the man's not mentioned in the, in the chapter. So please examine and see whose signet ring and cores and staff are these. And so Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shalah. And uh, so he did the wrong thing, uh, she did the wrong thing, uh, in comparing two wrong deeds, um, and he does not have relations with her again. So here we have it. And, and the, line of, the line of Christ comes through this. If you can imagine, you talk about grace turning cursing into blessing, but genetically the, the, the line of Jesus Christ is, is happening here in this, in this womb. All right, well... That's the story there. So public contempt, it can, it can terrify. It can be a motivation. The public contempt can, uh, can, can spark a repentance. It can spark somebody doing the right thing, even if for, not for right reasons, but at least to avoid these wrong reasons, there can be a cultural benefit in your community to the contempt. Until you're so given over that you just don't care anymore. And then public wickedness will just embrace it. And, and they, they thrive in the shame and they just say, okay, 
and as just a cost of doing business at that point, uh, as I think we see in Psalm 31:18 and Psalm 123. I don't remember what these say, but we can look at these as well. So Esther, Job, Psalms 31. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. So, yeah, they're just embracing it. They, they have all the pride and they embrace the contempt. As far as they're concerned, that's the way it goes. Psalm 123, verses 3 and 4. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. So the ones who should be contemptible have turned it around backwards and now they're heaping contempt upon humble believers living out their faith by the word of God. They call good evil and evil good. They flipped it upside down and backwards. And now a believer who's just trying to walk with the Lord and and uh, try to be obedient and trying to hold biblical standards of marriage, biblical standards of sexuality. Now they're the villain. They're the hater. They're the ones that are mocked and held in contempt and scorn. And uh, everything is just upside down. Like that bizarro world we talked about a while back. In any event, I think this is lost. I think public shame, because it has been flipped around, because it has been reversed, I think it's lost to the point. I remember... Um, when I was growing up, uh, a girl that got pregnant, she didn't, she went somewhere. She was not, she didn't stay in the same school. They had an alternative school. They had a homeschooling tutorship kind of a thing set up. Um, there was, there were alternatives. Same thing with boys that got in trouble too. Juvenile delinquents that had a criminal record. They had a, a reform school kind of thing for them also because you didn't want their influence to, to spread. You didn't want the peer pressure of that, the the thug mentality to affect others. You wanted morality to be present in the in the public schools, and so that's uh, that's the reason for that. Well, all that's gone now, and now sin is celebrated. Now it's uh, you know there's daycares in the schools. Now there's all kinds of other things, and it's uh, it's a different world these days. All right, so I'm all for peer pressure, <laughs> positive peer pressure, reflecting divine norms and standards. All right, from contempt we go to, from booze we go to cologne. From booze we go to cologne. And cologne represents an intensification of booze. It is the next step. And uh, it may also, um, you know, in in a sense, could overlap. They're both public shamings. uh, But this one is stronger, has 17 uses. Strong's number for cologne is 7036. Uh, Speaking of dishonor, shame, and disgrace used in both personal and public contexts, a public gratuitous display of shame where it's just in your face, it's just out there in the open. You know, at least, uh, you know, Judah had the, I mean, what he did was bad, but uh, at least he had the decency to keep it under wraps. He had the, he had the decency to, you know, not just throw it out there. And I think... Um, in the consequences of what he did. He now had to, as a as the grandfather of his own son, he had to um, you know go through parenting again to the next generation. 
and uh, accepting that in any event. It, it is a step up. It is a vulgar, gratuitous display of shame, the vulgar display of nakedness. And um, boy, if they could have seen us today. Jeremiah thirteen twenty six, and And what's curious about all this is that, well, let's look at the verses first and then we'll illustrate it. But Jeremiah 13, 26. The idiom is a little awkward sometimes because the cologne could refer to shame, it could refer to nakedness, it could refer to um, body parts. All right, Jeremiah 13. Part of the consequences here that Jeremiah is preaching. And, well, where do we start this? Anyway, it's a rebuke, and uh, Judah is being judged for their wickedness. They're going to be taken into captivity. And... um, Yeah, just picking up in uh, verse, I guess, 22. If you say in your heart, why have these things happened to me? Because of the magnitude of your iniquity. You're, you're really, you're asking the question and it's outrageous you should even have to ask because you've had warnings. You've been rebuked in the past. You've not listened to the earlier warnings. And now you're in an intensified stage of discipline. The, the captivity is an intensified stage. You had warnings prior to this. Asking the why have these things happened to me as a feigned ignorance is, is just more um, lud- uh, you know, ludicrous profession of innocence. You know why it's happening to you. Because of the magnitude of your iniquity, your skirts have been removed. Your heels have been exposed. That's uh, scandalous too. It's, this is pretty dark in uh, how these terms are applied. Can uh, the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good. You who are accustomed to doing evil. And this, this shows uh, a giving over. This shows you've reached such a point in your darkness that you've passed the point where any repentance is going to happen. That uh, the leopard will, will change his spots before you become uh, positive in doctrine again. That's uh, it's just that shows the impossibility because you've crossed this line and God is giving you over. Therefore I will scatter them like drifting straw to the desert wind. This is uh, your lot, the portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord. Don't confuse the instrument with the source. God is using the Babylonians to discipline Jerusalem. So this is your lot, the portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. So I myself have also stripped your skirts off over your face. That your shame, that your cologne may be seen. As for your adulteries and your lustful neighings, the lewdness of your prostitution... And so the language of this is, is placed, it's, it's, 
He uses the sexual language because of the nature of the adultery, the nature of the, the idolatry uh, is commensurate. It's, an, it's a fitting judgment based upon the sin. The double compound discipline principles. Anyway, the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills of the field, I have seen your abominations. And so this is the language that he uses. And it's rough. But the gratuitous display of shame, the gratuitous display, the vulgar display of nakedness. So if you're going to play the harlot, well then let the whole world just see um, you know, the, the body parts and the, and the whatever. Okay? And uh, it's, uh, it is not pleasant to read. Alright. Hosea 4. Another unpleasant chapter. Now Hosea, this is, I should maybe change the order on these. I listed them in the canonical order rather than the sequential order. Hosea is earlier than Jeremiah. Hosea is the last prophet to the northern kingdom before they go into captivity. So really I should have put that first because Judah had a chance to learn from Israel's destruction. Hosea 4 um, And there's so much here. So verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. New wine is just as intoxicating as wine. New wine is not the Old Testament equivalent of unfermented grape juice. Don't fall for that. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol. Their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot, or your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. The spiritual leadership that's tolerating this in their community are more accountable. Judah was more accountable than Tamar. They both sinned, but Judah was more accountable. Same thing here. The spiritual leaders of Israel are accountable. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also do not go to Gilgal or go up to Beth-Avon and take the oath as the Lord lives. Try to limit the damage. Don't let it spread to Judah. So Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. Can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. They dearly love the kalom. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Public gratuitous displays of shame. And uh, you start to wonder um, 
Yeah. Here's our American culture where everything is uh, gratuitously displayed no matter what. Sometimes I think movies just throw an extra nudity scene in just for the sake of having it there. It doesn't really tell the story. It's not really necessary, but we get so desensitized to it. Nahum 3.5 Nahum Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. I have to recite all those books in order otherwise I can't find Nahum. <laughs> Amos, Obadiah, Joel. Okay. Nahum 3.5 Now remember Nahum, and this is even earlier still, boy I'm getting these all out of order. Uh, Nahum preceded Hosea uh, right before uh, Hosea. Uh, Nahum gave the message that Jonah wanted to give. (laughs) And Jonah gave the message Nahum wanted to give. Nahum would have loved it if Nineveh would have repented. And and yet he had to to pronounce the wickedness and pronounce the judgment. And um, Let's see here. Do I want to read all one through five? Now verse four says, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace and I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And so again this gets ugly too. The the um, the vulgar Hebrew expressions here that speak of excrement and speak of um, just the horrible things, the exposure of the heels. I mean these are these aren't pleasant things to talk about or even think about but they are as blunt as anything in uh, in the Bible, and God gives that for us to learn from, that we uh, we don't imitate the Canaanites that live around us in uh, in their lifestyle, their death style practices. Habakkuk two sixteen. Habakkuk is the book right after Nahum, <laughs> two sixteen. Verse 15 says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory." Again, we see the idolatry, we see the fornication, we see all of the, the sin and the, the plot to, to engage more and more people in it, not satisfied with it themselves. They want to they recruit others into the destructive patterns here. And <laughs> it gets even worse. <laughs> this is only the middle step of the three, you know. And, and, and hopefully we can see the balance to this. Proverbs teaches us the balance to this. 
Um, if, we, if we just fixate on the negative passages, if we fixate on the judgment passages where we have the equivalency of nakedness and shame, then I think we have a one-sided wrong view. We have to get God's view as well because remember, Adam and Eve were naked, but they were not ashamed. All right? That it's, it's the consequences of sin whereby nakedness uh, has, comes with that connotation of, of shame, judgment, uh, and so forth. Before sin, nakedness was, was not a, a shameful thing at all. They were naked and not ashamed. It's emphatically stated in that regard. Now after sin, now nakedness becomes, uh, under judgment, nakedness can become uh, shameful. But in the protection of marriage as God designed it, nakedness becomes proprietary and it becomes uh, celebratory. See, not shameful but only within the bounds of marriage because it's proprietary, meaning your nakedness belongs to one person and one person only. And, and that's your husband, that's your wife, that's the, the blessings of that. And if you fornicate, you are uncovering somebody else's nakedness. That's not your nakedness. Why are you uncovering that? That's shame. But if it's yours there's no shame. There's delight. There's celebration. There's joy. It says rejoice in the wife of your youth. It literally says play. Play with her, right? And it, it be satisfied. And there's uh, drink water from your own cistern, as it says. So uh, yeah, the Hebrew has some very blunt metaphors, uh, not only for the sin end of things, but also for the, the, uh, the righteous end of things in, in marital sexual relations. So uh, yeah. Thirdly, we get to Chirpa. And this seems to be the worst of them all. This is where nothing could be worse. So it's another word for shame, it's another word for reproach or disgrace or scorn. It's used 73 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. The, the noun is Chirpa. C-H-E-R-P-E-H. Strong's numbers 2781. And the idea that nothing could be worse. When we find these expressions, it's almost as if death is better. Nothing is worse. You think, well, what could be worse than what we've already seen (laughs) with your country conquered and being hauled off into captivity and divine judgment upon you that Yahweh Himself is measuring out um, curiously enough, for women and for men, they have different perspectives. But no circumstances can be worse. No people can be worse. So herpa is the ultimate. And with verses that maybe we struggle with today, uh, our modern culture does not understand how shameful it was in the ancient world for a woman to be childless. But Genesis 30, there was no worse fate for Rachel than watching um, Leah have baby after baby after baby. And this is the pinnacle. 
This is the worst. This is, this is even more unthinkable than captivity and military conquest and enslavement and, and the degradations of, that, that women have in being plundered. That being plundered is bad. We all agree. But to be childless, <laughs> we struggle to agree. To be childless is worse. But the ancient world would not have thought so. The ancient world would have put Rachel's childless condition as a worse estate than the war captive in the plunder circumstance. Anyway, Genesis 30. Um, Where am I reading here? Verse 23. And so Leah has all these children and then, uh, but verse 22, God remembered Rachel. God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my herpa, my reproach. The uh, disgrace, the scorn, the utmost contempt. The nothing could be worse than this circumstance. God has finally taken away. And then she named him Joseph saying, give me another one. <laughs> give me another one. And that sentence there, I think, betrays she's not content. She's not rejoicing. Uh, it looks like she's rejoicing because she says God has taken away my reproach, but it's still all about her. And she says, I want another one. And, you know, could she have been content with, uh, with this first one? Does she give him a name? I mean, when, when Leah gave her children names, she named Reuben, Yahweh has seen, and Levi, or uh, Simeon, Yahweh has heard, and Levi, I shall be joined, and Judah, praise. Uh, Leah has biblical, godly, spiritual names for every child she names. Uh, Rachel finally has a baby and says, I want another one. <laughs> give me another one. All right. Anyway, there's more to say on that. Isaiah 4 1 actually has a promise here, an eschatological promise connected to this very mindset. In the coming millennial kingdom, seven women will take hold of one man in that day. <laughs> Lucky guy. No. Yeah, all right. Seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Oh, um, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Take away our herpa. And when you have such a depopulation in wartime, and you're such a depopulation in the tribulation and how many get killed in the in tribulation and then what kind of remnant survives the tribulation to enter into the millennium and uh, if you have if your ratio of men to women is seven to one that's not good that's not good at all so much so that these women are um, effectively going to maintain their own economy they're going to maintain their own household their own income their own 
Um, they don't need to be provided for, but they do need a son. They do need heirs. Let us be called by your name. Let us take away our reproach. And, and this is, again, as to our, our, our generation is so lost with respect to um, what militant feminism has done and other liberal uh, unbiblical mindsets is, uh, first of all, don't take a man's name because that uh, destroys your identity and makes you less of what, whoever, you know. And then, uh, so, you know, keep your name or hyphenate something or, or uh, you know, march for your rights and whatnot. But then also removing the idea of motherhood as having any value whatsoever that your, your uh, self-worth is going to be found in bu- the business world or your self-worth is going to be found in in uh, in other things, and all of this is kind of lost. It makes passages like this hard to preach to 21st century people uh, that say, "Okay, you don't have a kid. What's the big deal?" Oh, <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you. Particularly because you know it's 70 percent of the time you're going to outlive your husband anyway, and then who's uh, who's going to take care of you in the in the older years, and and uh, you need the son for that, and other uh, other things there. All right, well, that's on the women end of things. What about on the men's end of things? What could be possibly worse for a man? First Samuel eleven. First Samuel. Also realize too, not only is there a personal vested interest in having children to look after you in your older years, but then prophetically, eschatologically, women are the the conveyors of the Christ in the sense that that seed of the woman promise that the coming Savior of the world requires a mom to have a baby. And uh, so there's spiritual aspects as well that motherhood is uh, is honored in that blessing as well. All right, but on the men's side of things, um, hmm. Nahash, the Ammonite, came up, and Nahash, there's a satanic name if I ever saw one, this guy's a serpent, uh, came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, Here's the terms of your surrender. That I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. Thus I will make it a herpa on all Israel. Hmm. <laughs> so you can't defend your city. You can't defend your women, your children. And you're willing to have them gouge out your eye so for the rest of your life, you're walking around on display as you're the ones that uh, surrender to this. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Wow. So we'll consider this. Can we have seven days to think about it? Can we have seven days to find someone to help us? <laughs> Because we're not man enough to defend ourselves. And if no one else will come help us, then we'll submit 
and will be the one-eyed uh, the one-eyed herpa for the rest of our days. So messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Said, man, too bad for them. But Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen and said, what's the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words and he became very angry. See, Saul in his early days... Don't confuse Saul in his later days with Saul in his early days. This is a good story on Saul's behalf. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. What is it that unifies a people? It's interesting preaching a message like this on 9-11, you know, there was a lot of unity in uh, our culture after 9-11-2001. Well, similar thing happening here. And they're rallying to Saul and Samuel in this, uh, in this way. And they're not going to stand by and let the men of Jabesh uh, Gilead come to this kind of herpa. All right. Um, how much more do we want to read on this? Let's go to the next example, 17, 1 Samuel 17. And here's Goliath taunting. Isn't this interesting now? Because Saul would not tolerate the taunting, would not tolerate the herpa in his younger days, would not tolerate the herpa, and he was still spiritual, he was still godly, he was, he was uh, humble before Samuel, and Saul and Samuel went out and had a great deliverance there, but now here's Saul being taunted and doing nothing about it. And Goliath is mocking the armies of the living God. And now David has to stand up in his generation. I'm guessing 10 years old, 12 years old can't be much older than that or he'd been with uh, his brothers in the army here so I'm guessing he's 10 years old and he's already killed lions and bears so um, David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the herpa from Israel for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God he's got the attitude that Saul had 20 years ago, or 15 years ago, whatever the time frame happens to be. Probably 20 years ago, if I have to guess. All right, well, we'll come back to this. Um, nothing could be worse, and nobody could be worse. Not only things, but people. When people become a herpa, when people become a, uh, a reproach, and it's the utmost scorn because and actually, this is the language Jesus uses on the cross for himself. It's the language David uses when he composes Psalm 22. It's the language of shame. And Jesus becomes the utmost shame. He bears our shame. So Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 are both uh, messianic, looking forward to Calvary, looking forward to our salvation. And I don't want to 
try to race through it in three minutes. So I'm going to let you guys go early and we'll spend more time here next week. How about that? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Uh, Father, some of these things are culturally lost to us, but we can still glean the ideas that the impact wicked people have on our culture gets worse and worse and worse the longer it is allowed to have impact on our culture. And when we see what passes for entertainment, when we see what is accepted as musical lyrics, when we see flagrant displays of fornication, we just tremble, Father, to wonder what our children are going to deal with in their generation. How much worse can it get? And yet, we even tremble to ask that question. So, Father, we pray that your word will turn it around, that a generation will arise that's hungry for the word of God, that will stand for biblical principles, that will stand for biblical morality. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.